Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. Uh, I am Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. I recognize that some of you are not listening in the morning at all. Um, it is midday or even evening where you are. So thank you so much for this time together. As you and I see and see images and then hear testimonies of the people victimized by Russian troops, um, particularly in the suburbs north of Kiev in Ukraine, I have an encouragement for us today, and that is to be angry, but do not sin. And I know, I I mean, I just know that we are going to be tempted to sin against those who have so gravely sinned so publicly against others. And so I just want to lift up Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 31. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. All of it. Be angry, but do not sin. Let's not celebrate the deaths of Russian soldiers who were trapped inside of columns of armored vehicles incinerated in the streets of Ukraine. Let us be horrified by their deaths as well. Let us grieve what is happening, and yes, let us be righteously angry. But let it not lead us individually nor corporately to sin. The world has changed a lot since we last spoke um, with Elizabeth Newman. Um, and I, I, one of the questions that um, I'm provoked to consider is, is really um, lifted up by comments made by the Chancellor of Germany. When he described where we are right now, his name's Olaf Scholz, when he described where we are right now um, by a word with which I was not familiar— So like zeitgeist, which, you know, is in our lexicon as like, you know, the spirit of the day in which we live, the sense of the times. Um, We now have zeitawinde, zeitawinde. And it's this notion that where we are right now is is a historical hinge, a turning point in history, after which everything will be different. Um. 
in the generationally cautious uh, establishment in Germany is recognizing it as such and um, pivoting. They have changed their posture toward the world and certainly their posture toward Russia. Um, They are now at a place they haven't been for a generation. They have injected more than $100 billion into their country's military and delivered lethal support to Kiev. That is a sweeping policy shift for the nation of Germany. But I think we must recognize that um, there are people who don't like the way that particular hinges in history swung in the past. And that's what is, I think, worth paying attention to as well. When all of history swung on a hinge and the Soviet Union came to an end, there was at least one guy who didn't like that. And his name is Vladimir Putin. Unless we imagine that he stands alone in pursuing contemporary bloodshed for offenses in what are the distant memory of most of the world, not everyone agreed with the end of the, with the, end of the Ottoman Empire. Not everybody thought the end of the, of the caliphate was good 100 years ago. And the Chinese are making clear that they were never really in support of the Sino-British Agreement of 1984. So yes, wars end with treatises, even cold wars. But that doesn't mean that hot emotions don't continue to boil right beneath the surface. So have atrocities been committed? Yes. Have war crimes been committed? I believe yes. But genocide? I think that's a compelling question. I'm not sure it's a word we should cast about too easily. So we're going to talk with Elizabeth Newman about developments in Ukraine, but we're also going to talk with her about things going on in relationship to Iran. And yes, right here at home with the January 6th Commission. All of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Elizabeth Newman is back. We love talking with her about things going on here in the United States and around the world. Um, Elizabeth, good morning. Good morning, Carmen. Man, what an opening. You you prompted me to go uh, thinking about things I hadn't been thinking of before. So, wow. My work here is done. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth, um, I, I I have heard the word genocide used in the last 24 hours in ways that I, you know, it's certainly atrocities, certainly war crimes. How those are going to be prosecuted is an open question. Um, can you just talk a little bit with us about language and the words that get thrown around in days like this? Yeah, I, President Zelensky is the one that called it genocide. Um, and look, if you're in his role, you understand why um, you would be using those words and and he's on the ground and we're not so um there there may be more that gets revealed um the the UN uh convention there's you know treaties that the world has signed that kind of defines what genocide is and it's um uh to ge- the acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national ethnical racial or religious group um so it's understandable. I can see where they get to the argument that there's just a desire to wipe out Ukrainians. Um, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. Um, certainly international law gets really um, uh, challenging. So how you might be able to prove this gets a little um, 
difficult. So I, I, I agree with your caution that we don't know enough and um, war crimes. Absolutely. I think we've seen enough evidence um, and I, I trust our uh, leaders in government who have access to a lot more information than we're seeing publicly. They believe war right. crimes have been committed. Um, genocide is, you know, a step beyond that. And uh, we have to wait for the evidence to bear out. Um, there's a storyline out of this conversation in Ukraine that, um, you know, I feel like is in your wheelhouse because it is this conversation about nationalism, um, populism, even neo-Nazism. There's this Azov battalion that has come into mm-hmm. view. And the way that the Russians talk about the Azov battalion and maybe why they're focusing so intently on Mariupol um, is lost to most people in America because our coverage is different in relationship to these these individuals and their history. Can you can you just read us in a little bit on why Putin can use neo-Nazism as a claim for why he's doing what he's doing in Ukraine? Yes. Um, so the argument goes, and it is uh, weak, a weak argument. So so please bear with me here. The argument goes that that uh, the Azov Battalion's a neo-Nazi group. Um, they they have been fighting in. Um, uh, basically Eastern Europe in various places. Um, and we've had U.S. persons go over to join the Azov Battalion uh, and gain training. That's why we get nervous is uh, they're gaining battlefield training. This is We're talking a decade now. We're not talking just this conflict. Um, and when they travel back, we, we don't, we get concerned when we have violent extremist uh, movements training people with battlefield experience um, coming back to the United States. Um, so it's not as if we, uh, you know, think we, we would like the Azov Battalion to be, you know, um, uh, taken care of as well. <laughs> but Russia is using them as a prop or as an excuse um, for their denazification of Ukraine. Um, so it's, it's as with everything, it is not to say that Ukraine is, um, uh, you know, a country full of, you know, 100% good people. There are these elements that are uh, operating in certain parts of Ukraine that uh, do subscribe to a, a neo-Nazi viewpoint. It's very abhorrent. Um, and are can, you know, on their own outside of this conflict, uh, creating harm in the communities that they are operate in. Uh, that said, that does not represent the entirety of Ukraine, much less the, you know, the government of Ukraine, which has kind of been Putin's argument that the people that are running Ukraine are actually a bunch of Nazis and he's, he's getting rid of them to free the Ukrainian people. Um, so there's, this uh, co-opting of, um, you know, a, a, a violent extremist group as the cause behind why they needed to uh, invade. So it, there's a, a strain of truth that there are these neo-Nazi groups that are doing things, but it's not it's not the way that Putin paints it. We're talking with Elizabeth Newman. Um, she served as a homeland security official here in the U.S., um, her particular area of expertise is, you know, prevention and security policy here in the United States. So with that in mind, Elizabeth, um, I want to talk with you about a few things going on here in the U.S., um, as well as the proposed uh, Iran nuclear deal when we come back from a very brief break. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All 
right, as everybody wants to do everything that we can to alleviate the suffering and offer a place for people fleeing war at home, the conversation about our own borders and safety and security where we live, um, you know, looms to the forefront of many people's thoughts and into some conversations. So as we look at massive um, refugee flows out of Ukraine, it it brings up again the conversation about who is welcomed into America um, and by what standards, which also, I think, leads to a conversation for us about what's happening at the U.S. southern border and the repeal of Title 42, which has prevented millions of people from entering the United States um, across the U.S. southern border during the COVID pandemic. All right, Elizabeth, all of that in play. Um, talk Talk with us a little bit about how DHS deals with conversations about who gets to come here um, and in what way and and how are they vetted? Yeah, that's uh, it's it's a complex system. Um, so there's two main categories. You've got refugees and asylees, and those processes are different. So in a, a refugee is somebody that the uh, in most cases, the U.N., has designated them as having refugee status. It's somebody that's been displaced from their home country. They have to be outside of their home country. Uh, and the UN gives them a status and then allows them to go through a process to resettle. If they've been assigned to the United States as their resettlement uh, uh, country, then we go through a whole series of vetting processes um, in addition to what the UN has already done to ensure they are who they say they are, uh, that we have no known de- what we call derogatory information, information indicating that this individual um, could pose a threat to the United States or has any sort of uh, uh, background or issues that under the law they would not be allowed to enter. So very rigorous uh, security vetting along with um, medical checks. And and then they, uh, after a pretty lengthy period of time, are allowed to come into the United States. Um, and there are dedicated nonprofit organizations that work with the State Department, um, places like um, Catholic Charities, Lutheran Services, uh, uh, World Relief, they help resettle people in the United States and provide them that very important support of meeting somebody at the airport and showing them how to do life in America, how to Um, make sure they have a safe place to stay, how to enroll their children in school. So all of that uh, really important latter um, uh, stage uh, process. The the refugee system, um, I spent four years um, during my time during the Trump administration uh, looking at and strengthening its vetting. I came away from that experience realizing that it is the most vetted population that um, we allow into the United States of all visa categories. So uh, business travel, tourist travel, like refugees get more scrutiny than anybody else. So I feel fairly confident that that system is very secure. My concerns about that system is that it is a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of displaced persons we have in the world. Uh, There are currently estimated uh, two years ago, 80 million after what has happened in Afghanistan, what happened, what's happening in Ukraine, that number is sure to rise. Um, so we, it's a drop in the bucket when you consider that the United States on average over the last 30 years has brought in about uh, 60 to 70,000 people a year. So 80 million, we're doing 60 to 70,000 a year. And our, the, the other Western nations that accept uh, refugees tend to come in a little lower than us. So we're, it's just not enough to meet the need. 
Um, you add to it, let's switch over to asylees, which is what we have at the southern border. Asylum is the process of somebody entering into the United States or presenting at a um, point of entry and claiming that they uh, they need asylum. They, they are uh, claiming that their home country, they're at risk of and then there's a whole list of things that they could be in danger of. Um, and the uh, Border Patrol officer has a res an initial responsibility to vet that claim, but then it quickly gets passed over to somebody else. And once somebody has claimed asylum under international law and treaty, we cannot remove them from the country. They have to stay here until their asylum claim is heard. And if their claim is rejected, they get sent back home. If it is accepted, they can be admitted into the United States. The problem is that we have a massive backlog in the asylum system. And so it actually serves as this pull factor where it incentivizes the cartels to bring people um, in and tell, tell them basically, once we get you in, once you have that asylum claim lodged, it will be seven years until your claim is heard. So you pretty much can operate in the United States um, as a you know somebody pending their claim and build a life, uh, make money, send money back home. And, and look, many of the people that are coming to claim asylum are very legitimately in need of asylum. The problem is all these other people that are also coming in claiming asylum and since the system doesn't work because it's backlogged, you end up um, with a lot of people here that shouldn't be here. Um, they don't actually meet the, the claim of asylum. They need to come through some other legal means. All of this to say, I know this is really complicated so early in the morning, uh, our immigration laws are utterly broken. Um, everybody loves to point fingers at the other side, that it's the Republicans or it's the Democrats. They're not securing the border. Or they're you know too harsh from a humanitarian standpoint. I, I take the view from the operator's perspective. You have men and women uh, of the Border Patrol, most of whom are you know, just amazing, amazing people. There are examples of bad apples in every batch, but most of them uh, are amazing people and they're overworked. And they do not have the support structure that they need to be able to deal with the volume of people that are desiring to come into the United States. Those dynamics of global migration from the south to the north, it's happening worldwide, it's not going away. The answer is not to point at the other political party and say it's their fault. We need to like be adults here and recognize this is very complex and start fixing the law and funding what we need to do with whatever we decide the right answer is in terms of um, the proper calibration of being welcoming and also securing our borders. Yeah, I mean, currently it's just a mess and it's just about to get a whole lot worse. So I'm sure this is a conversation we will uh, return to in the future. Um, we have about a minute, Elizabeth. I know it's not enough time. Can you just give us the over and the under on the Iran nuclear deal? Yeah, it's um, the talks have been stalled for about a month. Um, the primary issue seems to be the designation of the IRGC as a, a foreign terrorist organization. That's something that occurred during the Trump administration in 2019. It was an action that was largely symbolic. It has some, uh, some benefits. I, I participated in um, implementing it. Uh, so I'm aware of some of the uh, things in the classified realm it helps us with, but uh, for the most part, there are other ways that we sanction Iran. So it's this more symbolic 
thing, but members of Congress do not want to um, lift it. And Iran is saying that until we lift that designation, they will not move forward. The, here's the problem, though. They're just, Iran is about a, several weeks away from having enough fuel to, for a weapon. And so this is quickly becoming a, a difficult, there is no right answer type of scenario where we either try to find a way to prevent them from obtaining the weapon or and uh, in, in, in doing so, we're going to have to compromise some of our um, uh, standards, the, the, the FTO designation. Um, or we're going to be dealing with a talk about hinge point and um, an Iran that has a nuclear weapon capability, which I, I think most people find to be uh, very scary and uh, really a, a change in the global dynamic. Um, so that's where things stand. It's not a not a great standpoint at this uh, at this moment. Yeah, and I, I suspect that um, Iran's eyes were uh, wide open when the Negev summit took place um, just last week or the week before. I mean, I just it's there's things shifting on the global front that we're so um, you know we're so consumed with what's happening in Ukraine, rightly so. That you know there there are things happening um, of global significance elsewhere. Elizabeth, as always, thank you so very much. It's a, it's always a delight to catch up with you. We appreciate your being with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. That's Elizabeth Newman. You can find her at Moonshot and also at the National Immigration Forum. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. What breaks your heart? What makes you cry? What would I see if I look in your eyes? What breaks your heart? What breaks the heart of God? What um, what does it look like to see the world through the eyes of the Father and to be moved in the same way that Jesus was moved with compassion? And then to be, to recognize that you are fully equipped, the very power of God's Holy Spirit to change the world at that one point. So what breaks your heart? And is it something that breaks the heart of God? Are you being moved with compassion in the very spirit of Christ. And having been moved, are you then called to do something? We're going to talk about being a compassionary, yes, a missionary of compassion. So what does it look like to live in such a way that we are not just on commission with Christ as commissionaries, but with the very passion of Christ as compassionaries. That conversation up next with David Crocker. Joining us now, David Crocker. He's, um, He's just a regular guy. I mean, I think that's the way that I will phrase it. But the book is really great, and the vision is very compelling. Compassionaries, unleash the power of serving. David, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. It's good to be with you. I hope you weren't, you're not offended by being described as a regular guy. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So let's, um, first of all, define the word. Um, define the word compassionary. I mean, I, I, I like the way you've taken two words and put them together in a way that is very, very compelling. Sure. A compassionary is a person who is 
missionary-like in their use of compassion toward others and encourages others to do the same. So, I mean, we think about being co-missionaries with Christ. Like, I think that as evangelical Christians, we recognize that we are on co-mission with Christ. Being a compassionary, I think, takes that um, maybe a step further, and and it's in the it's in the same path of being a commissionary um, with Christ, but it adds in this this reality of the very passion of Christ, the way that Christ was moved with compassion toward others. Absolutely, um, it really does challenge believers to look more closely and deeply at how Jesus lived his life and how he cared for people around him, obviously with compassion. He set the example. And we talk a lot about being like Jesus. Well, this is certainly one of the ways we can do that. Uh, it will be challenge us from time to time, but uh, that's okay. He told us uh, we would be challenged. So it's, it's, we're never more like Jesus than when we serve others. So, David, you, um, not everybody that's listening right now is going to be a, an evangelist in the way that maybe we traditionally think about that word. Um, we're not all called to um, particular ways that we think of, you know, like big stage evangelism. But we are all called and each one called to make the world different in very tangible ways by serving others. I mean, you really see every Christian as empowered to do what you are calling us to do, which ultimately is to change the world. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, the, the beautiful thing about serving others is that everyone can do it. And I do mean everyone with no exceptions. Even persons who are disabled can serve in, in some capacities, young, very young, very old. Uh, I've known people above 100 years old who look for ways they, with their limited abilities, can serve others. And of course, they're an inspiration to everyone around them when they do that. I really like the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. It's one of my favorites about serving. And, and he says, uh, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. Uh, you only have to have a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. And, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about serving others. There, there's no limitation. Everyone can't be a missionary. Everyone can't be a preacher. Everyone can't sing in the choir or do any of the other typical roles that we normally think of as leadership-type roles, maybe within the church. But everyone can serve in some way, somehow. And so that's a calling that is extended to all of us, no exceptions. So David Crocker um, served as a senior pastor for uh, a number of churches in several states for more than 30 years. In, in 2007, he launched the faith-based nonprofit Operation In As Much, um, through which he has equipped over 2,300 congregations across the country in this model of compassion ministry. So the book is Compassionaries, Unleash the Power of Serving. David, when, um, when you talk about who is called to serve and how we are called to serve, um, nobody is left out of this. Everyone is, is called to serve. So I'd love for you to um, outline, as you do in the book, 
sort of these principles of serving, um, you define service as helping a person in need. That sometimes is different than the way service is described uh, in the world today. So make that differentiation and then help us look at Jesus as the model servant. Sure. Um, When I talk about serving in the context of this book, it is, in fact, serving people in need. And someone may have the question, well, what kind of need do you have in mind? You name it, fill in the blank. There are needs all around us. And uh, all we have to do is open our eyes to see them. So it's serving people in need. Now, uh, we do refer sometimes to people serving in the military. I did that, for example. Uh, But it's not serving in the sense that I'm using it here. We refer to servers in a restaurant. uh, And we appreciate what they do to help us enjoy a nice meal. But that, too, is not serving. I'm talking about serving out of a heart of compassion because a person or a family or maybe even an entire group, maybe a nation like like Ukraine, for example, right now has has compelling. They have compelling needs uh, that we are called to respond to, uh, to the extent that we are able to do that. So looking at Jesus, um, I see what he did for the disciples in washing their feet in the upper room as they had gathered there just a few hours before he was arrested in the garden as delivering his most compelling sermon, and it was wordless. When he took off his outer garments, wrapped himself with a towel, filled a basin with water, and went to them one by one and washed their feet. I believe personally that that was a compelling sermon, and he said so. He said, you call me Lord, and that's who I am, but look what I've done for you. And then he said, and I quote from John 13, I have set you an example that you should do for one another what I have done for you. I think that uh, uh, applies to every believer, not just that group of 12 in the upper room, but everyone who would identify himself or herself as a follower of Jesus. That's the that's the compelling sermon. And then as if as if there were any question about it, there was the occasion when uh, the mother of James and John came to Jesus to try to lobby him to uh, give them positions of favor when he set up his kingdom. Uh, and she said, no, no, you don't get it. I came to serve and not to be served. You put those two things together and how can we help but draw the conclusion that serving is the highest calling a person can aspire to. And so what I'm trying to do with the book and with conversations like this over the media is help people see the power of serving. It's powerful because it's something that God has placed in our hands as an ability to make things happen for good in the lives of other people. And it's a gift that if we exercise that gift, we make a difference in the world. Or to use the phrase of uh, Steve Jobs, we make a dent in the universe. <laughs> That's good. Um, it, operationinasmuch.org, operationinasmuch.org is the website for this Compassion Revolution. The book is Compassionaries, Unleash the Power of Serving. We're going to continue our conversation with David Crocker in just a moment. Welcome to the First Church of Mercy, where the doors of love swing open wide. 
We're talking about Dave. We're talking with David Crocker about his book, Compassionaries: Unleash the Power of Serving. Um, we're also talking about the. It, it's an organization, but it's but it's more than that. Operation in as much, which you can find at operationinasmuch.org. David, tell us about Operation In As Much. Oh, I'd love to. I am right now, Carmen, in the town where that model of community ministry began 27 years ago. I was pastor of a church uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is where I am at the, at the moment, having spoken in that church just yesterday. Um uh, and uh, it, it's a model of community ministry that is based on Matthew 25, 40. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And uh, it's basically a way that uh, a church can mobilize 50 to 75% of their church's average attendance out ministering to people in need in their community in one day. And then there's another step that comes after that that we call in as much united which is churches banding together, collaborating, partnering, uh, so that you have more people serving and they are serving more people, meeting more needs. And then the third step is in as much life, which is lifestyle. And that really is what the, the Compassionaries book is about. It's developing a serving mindset so that we are alert to needs that we face or encounter. Uh, almost every day of our lives, sometimes very, very what might appear to be insignificant, but yet it's a need that God has placed in front of us. And the question is, are we going to meet that need? Are we going to hurry along in life? And so what I'm trying to do is help people see that if we could just develop and cultivate uh, on a daily basis this serving mindset, our lives will be better the church will be stronger because we will more nearly be modeling Jesus' life, and that's, after all, what we want people to see, and the community will be better, regardless of the size or nature of the community. Just imagine a world where people would not let any need they encounter go by, but they're like the Samaritan in the story Jesus gave, where they were moved with, he was moved with compassion to help the victim on the road, and we would do the same thing. So I dream of a world like that, where people really give serving others that kind of priority. It occurs to me, I mean, and, and as I have read um, some of the stories, both online um, at, at Operation Inasmuch.org and in the book, um, it occurs to me that in many, many cases, David, um, the need actually has a name. I'm not just meeting needs. There is a person. Um, this is a really personal conversation. This isn't me just about me having uh, a change of mind in the way that I think about things or even just in in my doing things differently or living more simply that, that someone else might simply live this is about knowing a name and getting to know a person. Talk about the change that takes place, not just in the person being served, but in the person serving. Oh, I could talk a long time about that, Carmen. Um, but first, let me reference another biblical story out of the Gospels. Um, one of my favorites is when Jesus went to the Pharisees' home for dinner and a woman of ill repute came in to attend to Jesus. And Jesus was criticized by the Jewish leaders because he allowed her to do that. 
Uh, and uh, he he told the story that we all know. You know what? Who who is more grateful? The person who is forgiven a little bit or forgiven a lot? And of course, they need the right answer. And then he turned to them, and this is the key point of the story, I think. He said, "Do you see this woman?" Mm. No, they didn't see her. They looked right past her. All they were interested in was um, calling Jesus' uh, popularity into question and, and trying to trap him. And, and I think he asks the same question of us, of people around us. Yes, you're exactly right. These needs have names. They are people. They are fellow human beings. We may live next door to them, or they may be uh, on the other side of the town in which we live, or on the other side of the world. They're all God's people. They're all uh, people that he cares about. And he is warning us to be alert to the needs of those people and do what we can to try to alleviate uh, those needs. Now, in terms of what happens to a person who serves, uh, I like to refer to it as the happiness trifecta. There are three documented ways we receive the benefit, or to put that another way, we feel good when we serve. One is we are, we, we have this biological built-in, we're hardwired to serve. There literally is a part of our brain that is stimulated when we serve others. And good hormones like dopamine and oxytocin are released, and that gives us a kind of a helper's high, if you will. What's interesting is there is another hormone that can cause us to feel uh, sad or depressed, uh, chlorosol. It is in, at the same time reduced. So the good is boosted and the bad is reduced. Okay, that's the biological part. The second piece of this happiness trifecta is that our relationships with others are strengthened. That may be a relationship with the person we're serving. There's a connection that is formed there when we serve another person that is different than many other connections we experience with other people. And it's not a dependency. We don't want that. It's a People do us a favor when they allow us to serve them. And that's one of the things that I've tried to teach all through the years. Thank those people you're serving because they're doing you a favor. Uh, and the third is it gives us a sense of purpose. Uh, I don't often quote Goldie Hawn, but I do in the book uh, because she said something that's worth quoting. She said, a purpose-driven life makes us happier. Uh, I, I wouldn't have expected Hahn, but she's exactly right. We know that from experience. When we have uh, we have that uh, sense of purpose working, then um, it makes us feel better. And, and then I add a fourth thing. It's beyond a trifecta. We make God happier when we serve others. I mm. sometimes refer to that as putting a smile on God's face. Uh, yeah, causing uh, God really joy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. I've, I see it happen in the lives of people. Uh, and, and I think when we serve another person out of a, an overflowing of God's love in our life, I, I think that's one way we can we can please him. And after all, I think that's what Jesus said in Matthew 25. In as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it for me. That's pretty powerful. 
Well, um, David, please give my uh, personal affectionate greetings to our mutual friend, Brian Wilson. I'm so thankful for the connection that the two of you have and for um, the ministry opportunities that you are really, I think, bringing into reach for everybody. One of the great things about this book, you guys, and the book, again, is Compassionaries, Unleash the Power of Serving. One of the great things that the book does is helps you identify those opportunities to serve uh, people in need right where you are and to find the sweet spot um, of your particular calling as a compassionary. It's one thing to recognize that we live in a world of needs and we are the people whom God is sending as agents of his grace to meet those needs. It's another thing to have uh, your hands on a resource that helps you figure out what that sweet spot is for you. This book does that. It's Compassionaries, Unleash the Power of Serving. David Crocker is the author, and you can um, you can find David online at his website, davidwcrocker.com. This is Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Faith Radio. He put that All right, as you approach this day, do so recognizing who you are, an image bearer of the living God, redeemed in Christ Jesus our Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, called by the Christ of compassion to be a compassionary, sent with the great commission to share the good news of the gospel with others. Like, Jesus is real. Redemption is real. Reconciliation with God is possible. Life can be better in in ways that we often don't talk about in our culture. You can have a peace which passes all understanding. You can know the secret of being content in the midst of all kinds of circumstances. Let's be sharing Jesus today, tangibly in service to others, and then also in word as we share him in deed. Thank you so much for this time together. You can visit me online at myfaithradio.com. Lots of great things going on. Please sign up for the Reading the Bible Together um, week during Holy Week. We'd love for you to join us. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.